I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. And tonight, we're going to be having a very frank discussion about the clergy abuse scandal. This may be a bit much for a lot of younger viewers or more sensitive viewers uh, to hear, so they, they may want to leave. Um, but while parents address that, we certainly want to take a moment to talk briefly with EWTN's John Elson about a new program that is premiering next Saturday on March 19th, and it will be about our Lord's earthly father, St. Joseph. John. Good to see you, Father. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and it's great to be with you and to tell our audience uh, about this new program that you mentioned. Uh, yeah. It's entitled St. Joseph, Our Spiritual Father, which will debut, as you mentioned, on March 19th at 10 a.m. Mm -hmm. Eastern. And as we know, St. Joseph had a very important custodial role uh, to the Holy Family. And every yes. March, uh, we're invited to uh, meditate upon his life and, and his example. And the Gospel of Mark uh, teaches us that St. Joseph was a righteous man. And in addition to him being righteous, he was a man of great obedience. We see three different occasions when the angel of the Lord appeared to St. Joseph, the first following Mary's Annunciation, the second uh, commanding him to take the family and flee into Egypt, and the third to return to Israel from Egypt. And with that obedience, uh, we also see uh, St. Joseph being a man of great sacrifice. Mm -hmm. To go from uh, Israel to Nazareth was not a hop, skip, and a jump. This was a journey of many, many hundreds of miles. You mean from uh, uh, Israel, Israel to Egypt? Israel to Egypt, thank yeah. you, and, and back, and, and then back again. A journey of, of hundreds of miles, and so this through, idea of... I've done it yeah, on yeah. a bus. It's a through a desert. Right, right. It's, it's not the most beautiful scenery, yeah. and it's hot and dry. Right, and so this idea of St. Joseph being very elderly, is something that this uh, program addresses and, and, and corrects. And also, he's a man that uh, appreciated and lived the dignity of work. Uh, you know, uh, when Jesus uh, returns to Nazareth during his years of preaching, he goes to the synagogue, and many uh, in Nazareth say, is this not the carpenter's son? And if we look at the Greek translation of tekton, the carpenter, a carpentry or craftsman is another translation. Mm -hmm. And so we see uh, Jesus, uh, you know, absorbing these lessons of Joseph and says to Peter in Matthew's Gospel, upon this rock, Peter, I will build my church. So this idea of building, of constructing something that perhaps emerged from, from his home, obviously. Sure. And so the, the program travels to St. Joseph's Oratory in Mount Royal, which is the largest uh, church in Canada, Basilica, dedicated to St. Joseph. Also tells the story of the Loretto, I'm sorry, the St. Joseph staircase in the Loretto Chapel in Santa Fe. And we also have... And that's uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Santa Fe, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And we also have uh, interviewees from around the world speaking to his virtues. So we're excited to bring this program to our audience and to debut it, as I mentioned, on the Solemnity of St. Joseph on March 19th. Great. Well, good. We we'll look forward to having that okay. there. Um, so it'll be St. Joseph, our spiritual father, Saturday, March 19th at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. So you can get that at right after you go to a St. Joseph's table and celebrate the feast. We'll be back in just a moment and uh, talk to our guests, so please stay with us.
Welcome back. Our guest tonight is a sociologist and a researcher who has fearlessly provided a well-documented and painfully candid account of the facts and causes of the clergy sexual abuse scandal, its cover-up, and the media exploitation of the church that has followed in its wake. In his new book, he discusses the roles of evil, homosexuality, the sexual revolution, and dissent from church teaching. But he also discusses how the Catholic Church is not alone in this problem. So please welcome the president of the Catholic League for Religious and Civil Rights, Mr. Bill Donahue. Bill. Thank you so much, Father. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's always a delight. Uh, it's something that we always learn a lot from when we are with you. And your book is called The Truth About the Clergy Sexual Abuse. Uh, it's uh, clarifying the facts and the causes. Um, we, you know, have that at EWTN Religious Catalog. Um, thank you for doing the research. Uh, sociology is a very specific kind of study, and you have researched what's going on, and one of the great things about your training in sociology is that you learn how to read statistics, and that shows up throughout this book. A lot of times, um, statistics are tossed around and used, as uh, G.K. Chesterton once said, that some people use statistics the way a drunk uses a lamppost, that it's something to lean on rather than a source of illumination. And so this is something where your care in this is very important. I want you, first of all, to lay out what you mean in the book by saying there are two scandals. What do you, why do you say there are two scandals? Well, the first scandal is the one that uh, the public knows about. That's the one that was created by enabling uh, bishops and molesting priests. Mm -hmm. Now, we know that there's a social context to that, the sexual revolution, which we can get into later. Yes. But there's a second scandal, which is not well uh, acknowledged. Uh, I have to credit Marianne Glendon for commending me after I discussed scandal two a number of years ago. She said, I would encourage you to uh, continue with that line of thought. The second scandal is the one that's not made by the church, it's by the enemies of the church. I'm talking here about some segments of the media, Hollywood, uh, activist organizations, victims groups, uh, lawyers that represent the, the victims groups, of pen, the uh, attorney general's reports, and, and the like. There are a number of people in our society who have a vested interest, not so much monetarily, although some of the lawyers do. Uh, but they do have one ideologically. Their interest is in trying to undermine the moral authority, the moral voice of the Catholic Church. And the best way to do that is to, is to poison the public mind with the idea that the scandal has never ended, that it is still ongoing. That is simply not true. It's empirically false. And we can talk about that. But that's what scandal two is, trying to convince public 
that nothing much has really changed in the Catholic Church. They want to do that so they can weaken the Catholic Church and therefore continue on with their irresponsible ideas of liberty. In the fact that you point out and, and you lay out lots of information about Scandal 2, because uh, you bring up the uh, fact that the media does not report on its own scandals, that they demand, you know, uh, you know, clarity from the church and that the church make known its scandals, but they don't report their own until it's too late and they get caught. Um, they don't report on the scandals in other areas of life, among, within families, among psychologists, medical doctors, and one of the worst places, after the family, one of the worst places is the, the, the school system, the public school system. They don't report on those elements. And this is something that's important because it's a widespread issue of child abuse. And that's one of the points that you bring out. Yes, and, and, and let's make it clear to, to the viewers, uh, Father, when we talk, and you, you properly cite uh, the, the sexual abuse that takes place in the family, this almost never happens because of the biological father or mother. Right. It's the live-in boyfriend right. and the stepfathers that you have to be very, very careful about. As a matter of fact, the live-in boyfriend is a, is, a, is a terrible problem in this country. Nobody wants to talk about it. And the reason the lawyers don't go after these guys is because there's no money in it. They know the Catholic Church has some money. They want to shake them down. In terms of the media, I'm glad you mentioned the media. Everybody knows about uh, 60 Minutes. They've done some good work over the years, some not-so-good work, uh, kind of a mixed bag. I don't tend to watch it much anymore. But there has been a lot of problem with sexual misconduct in the workplace at 60 Minutes, not just simply with Jeff Fager, who's in charge of 60 Minutes, he was, but I'm talking about the very top of CBS, Les Moonves. These guys have been have basically had to resign or been thrown out of CBS because of what's going on. And the Washington Post knew about this, but they had friends at CBS, and so they covered it up. And uh, there are lots of examples. Yes, we don't own this problem. Now, I'm not here to be an apologist and to say that because others are guilty, therefore, we're innocent. No. What happened in the church, and we should have higher standards for the church, but yep. let's also get away from the idea that somehow we have a monopoly on this problem. As a matter of fact, look you... the armed forces. Go uh, look at the media. Go look at the public school teachers. It's rampant. I was going to cite uh, your quote from the Philadelphia Inquirer, where it says, quote, victims, advocates, abuse, not just a Catholic problem. Some people assume that this is a Catholic problem. It's not, not at all. There are plenty of Protestant and non-denominational churches that cover up abuse and knowingly pass abusers from church to church or quietly dismiss a known abuser and don't bother to check up on the abuser and they don't know where they settled. It's something that applies to Jewish people, Muslim people, but even wider amongst uh, people who are secular. It's Hollywood is horrendous with the kid actors, uh, et cetera. You know, that this is something that's uh, widespread. So, well, as a matter of fact, I'm glad you mentioned Hollywood, Father, because 
Uh, there was a, a woman by the name of Amy Berg. She had done some work on the Catholic Church with the scandal. So she decided to do uh, a documentary on Hollywood with real pedophilia. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, we'll get into this a little bit later, but uh, most of the sexual abuse that took place in the Catholic Church had nothing to do with pedophilia. It was homosexuals, homosexuals who did it, not pedophiles. But in Hollywood, it's different. The pedophilia problem is, is rampant there. So Amy Berg did a documentary. She couldn't get anybody to cooperate with it. The same Hollywood people who like to put out movies like Philomena, full with lies about the Catholic Church, making the nuns look bad in Ireland and, uh, and, and the Magdalene laundries, et cetera, uh, they wouldn't dare cooperate with Amy Berg. So when she wanted to get the movie released and distributed, she could find no one to distribute it. It, only, it was only shown in a few places. So the cover-up in Hollywood of its own dirt is, is, is uh, absolutely outrageous. And again, the public doesn't know about it because there's this sense out there within the media that they protect themselves. Again, this is not to excuse wrongdoing in our church. But it is to say that there is another scandal out there, and people have been played, okay? They're playing us when they when they try to think that we had we had some kind of monopoly on this problem. There's a serious problem throughout our society, but they don't want to talk about it. That, I think, is one of the key points, that what happened among Catholic clergy and other clergy is part of a wider social problem. That's what you bring out in the research. Children are seen as objects and that they are seen as objects for sexual abuse um, and physical abuse. And this goes across the, the culture. And uh, as was pointed out in the uh, report by Cheryl Shakeshaft done for the U.S. Department of Education, it was four times as widespread within public schools as among clergy. And we have to address the clergy and the others. The other thing that you also bring out in terms of that second scandal is that while the church has been the most successful of the organizations to approach abuse, it doesn't get credit for that, and it should be touted as a model to help all parts of society learn how to correct this problem. Yes, and I'm glad you mentioned that because, unfortunately, some of the blame is in the church itself. Uh, there are people who are afraid to tout the success. I'm not asking for a victory lap. I'm mm -hmm. simply saying that if we take a look at the evidence, as called from the John Jay studies, the two major studies on the, on, the, on the priest, the evidence is overwhelming that this problem took place mostly in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, roughly 65 to 85. That was the heyday of the sexual revolution, which hit the Catholic Church as well as other institutions mm -hmm. in our society. Yep. But we've made tremendous progress from thousands of accusations being made every year. We're down to 5.9 substantive, uh, substantiated uh, accusations made each year against 50,000 members of the clergy. So the media know about this. They don't want to report about it. That's because there's good news. They, they, want to, they are fixated on bad news about the Catholic Church, some of which we are responsible for ourselves with creating, but then they all the hyperbole and the exaggerations, and in fact the downright dishonesty, not acknowledging 
that we've made faster progress on this issue than any other institution in our society. The public schools should be learning and take a leap out of the Catholic uh, Church playbook because we've made the progress and yet they haven't made it to public schools and yet the media are mostly quiet about that. Yep. You know that uh, even here in Alabama, it, what, there was a proposal to have training for all the public school teachers, all school teachers, in fact, uh, public and non-public, uh, on uh, against sexual abuse of children, and it wasn't voted in because of pressure from the teachers' unions. And in your own city of New York, um, uh, allegations of abuse are protected, actually. Uh, in, in a building they call the Rubber Room. You can, anybody can look up the Rubber Room in New York City. You'll see what I'm talking about. So this is the second scandal. Now, it would not exist without the first scandal. That's one of the other points you make. There would not be this kind of critique of the church and then using this and milking it and ignoring abuse elsewhere unless the Catholics had this problem among the clergy. So it's a real problem, and we don't want to hide that in the least and deny it. It's, it's too horrendously real. So let's take a look. What are some of the facts about the uh, clergy abuse? You started off mentioning that the curve goes up from 65 high point in the 70s, and then in the 80s, it starts coming back down um, right after, you know, just before it's discovered. Tell us about some of the uh, aspects of this abuse. Well, you've got two parties, as I've said before, the enabling bishops and the molesting priests. In yeah. the case of the enabling bishops, for moving these guys around from one place to another, uh, there's, there is what sociologists say, and I want to make clear here, there's a difference between an, uh, an explanation and a justification. Yep. So I'm explaining something, I'm not justifying it. I, but there is something called in-group favoritism. You know, the, the example I often give is that the, uh, a 17-year-old uh, got drunk on a Friday night outside of 7-Eleven and got into a fight. The cops bring him home to the parents in, in the suburbs. They, what do the parents try to do? We'll take care of him, uh, uh, sir, uh, Mr. Policeman. We don't want to uh, have a, a record, and we'll deal with this ourselves. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, I understand that. The bishop is the father to the priest, and, I, and I, I get that. But when you're dealing with a criminal behavior, that's when they, they, they lost it. They should not have been so protective at, at that point. Others simply were inept. In other words, they didn't understand that there were red flags. Uh, I knew of a molesting priest, he has since passed away, who had a pinball in his bedroom, and he would invite the kids into the pinball uh, to play pinball. That was just a setup, a lure. Now, other people, the housekeepers and other people, secretaries, other priests, they must have known that. That's not normal for, for, for an adult man to have a pinball machine. So those kind of red flags were, were, were uh, dismissed by too many uh, bishops. And one thing I want to focus on here rather heavily the role of therapist. Now, again, I'm not going to exculpate or exonerate a bishop for making a bad decision, but to be fair to them, back in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, I have a PhD in sociology. I know what I'm talking about this because I know the people involved. They thought that they could cure these psychologists, the psychoanalysts, and 
uh, and, and psychiatrists, they could fix anybody. There wasn't any kind of malady that couldn't be fixed. And they told the bishops, you give me Father X, and we'll put him through five sessions over six weeks or whatever, and we're going to send him back to you, and he'll be good to go. They overrated their competence in their own elitist arrogance. They should have said, listen, some of these men are seriously disabled, and maybe the best thing to do is to get them some help and then wean them out of the priesthood. They never said that. What they said is, we can fix them all. And the bishops bought this. And uh, I think the therapists have gotten away with murder, and I think that's because a lot of the people in academia, in the social sciences, they look at themselves. They say, well, we don't want to admit that we're the fair. Let's put it all on the bishop. No, it's not fair. So you've got that element. But then we also have uh, the molesting uh, priest. Now, why would a man put his hands on a minor? Well, there are a lot of things that people have argued that causes for that, and it's not has nothing to do with celibacy. They had celibacy for the last thousand years as, as a normative requirement. We didn't have this problem back in the 40s and 50s. This problem exploded with the sexual revolution. And quite frankly, it was the homosexuals. 81% of all of the sexual abuse of minors that was committed by homosexuals. They weren't going after prepubescent boys the little ones. They weren't the five-year-olds. They were the 15-year-olds. Now, I'm not I'm not trying to exonerate. I'm not trying to give somebody a pass for going after an adolescent. But there is a difference, and we have to understand that. The reason we have to understand it is that if you want to get rid of the problem, you better have a right diagnosis. The problem is homosexuality, all right? Now, we've had homosexuals in the, in, in the church and elsewhere in our society before. Why didn't we see this problem back in the 1940s and 50s when, with homosexual priests? Because they knew that they had to put a, a, a lid on their libido. There was a red light, not a green light. You weren't expected to act out. But the Catholic Church and the society as a whole dropped its guard in the 60s. The 70s was without doubt the worst decade in, in, in the history of the Catholic Church in the United States of America was the 1970s. The idea of sexual free-for-all took place in the 60s. It was acted out in the 70s. What happened in the 80s? Well, we discovered AIDS, quite frankly, in 1981, and it took a few years before that kicked in, and then people began to slam the brakes on, but the damage had already been done. And uh, it's important to see that this was also increased—the abuse of children was also increasing elsewhere in society. It wasn't only in the Catholic Church. This was, uh, it's a, again, it's important to understand this in the context of a societal problem and its attitude toward children and horrendously, you know, Catholic priests participated in that same mentality. Now, to understand this also, uh, what is the percentage of priests and some of the numbers of priests who were involved in the abuse? Well, the figure from the John Jay study was about 4 percent. It's actually a little bit less than 4 percent, because these are accusations, not all of, of which have been substantiated. Mm -hmm. uh, so that would be the high number. Uh, the, the figures today is, is extremely low. 
I mean, this problem is basically over in the Catholic Church. Again, there are segments of our society which don't want us to, to say that. They would rather uh, say it's ongoing uh, and the like. But no, we, we've made tremendous progress. Uh, and yet, you know, it's interesting. The, these, the people who are promoting the idea of man-boy sex, they tend to be, many of them, professors. Professors in the mm -hmm. social sciences and the behavioral sciences. Yep. There's no country in the world which is worse with this, with the intellectuals endorsing adults having sex with children than France. And it was the French who gave us the ideas of postmodernism, Foucault and Derrida. There's no such thing as truth. Well, yes, there is. It's an objective reality. And but if you believe that there's no such thing as truth, the idea of having sex with a minor, well, it may not be for you, but who should you be to be so judgmental about telling us? Maybe the child won't like it. We have a group in this country called V4U. The four is the numerical four. V4U-ACT. And it's comprised of professors from Johns Hopkins, Harvard, London School of Art, Economics, and others, say we have to get over stigmatizing men who have sex with minors. That this is not something horrendous the way we've made it out to be. Now you and, and the French are, are even worse. So when you have this kind of baked into our culture that it's okay, why should we be surprised that when some men who are already disordered, once they hear this, they think it's okay to act on their impulses? Mm -hmm. If and I would add to that the importance of the Alfred Kinsey report on male sexuality in 1948. It took 20 years, but that report, which was pushed by people like Playboy and others, and eventually came to influence that they had a say in writing sex education books in the school systems. And in the Kinsey report, 400 boys aged two months to 14 years were sexually abused, and the abuse was studied by the people and reported on, and it was concluded that despite the boys uh, vomiting, becoming hysterical, crying, begging for it to stop, they, the researchers concluded that this was good for them. If you want to see more on that, uh, Judith Reisman studied that and its impact on the United States in law and in the, the, the school system. And so that also cannot be underestimated as an influence that by the, within 20 years of that report, the sexual revolution hit hard in the United States, largely influenced by it. Yes, and I'm, I'm very proud to uh, cite Judith Reisman. I've been in contact with her over the years. She's done excellent work on this. Yes. But, you know, it's not even—this this thing is ongoing. I mean, there's a fellow by the name of Gabriel Matsoff. Uh, he's in his 80s. He's a French intellectual and is, is a towering figure in France. They, they loved him for decades. He—everybody knew in France that he was having sex with boys and girls, little ones, and, and, and as well as adults. He was in, in, incredibly— a promiscuous sexual predator, a serial predator, and he was a hero. They liked him because they liked his writings. Only recently, only in the last few years, Father, 
Have they begun to change their mind that maybe we were wrong about being speaking about him in such a glowing fashion? Well, it's a little bit too late. A lot of people have been hurt because of these intellectuals uh, in France and in the United States, as well as elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And this is um, something where, uh, again, the context, the context for this issue is these societal changes, intellectuals, st students like Alfred Kinsey writing very popular books on sexuality, promotion of this by the pornography industry like Playboy and others. This set a stage and it went crazy in all areas of society and the church was not exempt from this. Again, 90, again, as you point out, 96, almost, you know, uh, uh, less than or more than 96% of clergy were not involved in any of this. But you wouldn't well, understand it from the, the media. And not only that, but uh, something like 149 priests, 149, are responsible for 26 percent of right. all the sexual abuse in right. the Catholic Church in America. Right. A tiny, tiny minority are responsible for one out of every four cases of abuse. And, you know, the, the one person who I continue to defend on this thing, you, you were talking about the contributors to the sexual revolution, Kinsey, uh, Playboy, you Hefner, and these other people. We now know that you Hefner used to uh, had sex with men, boys, and dogs. That's right. That's right. We have the evidence now. Men, boys, and dogs. Uh, this, this, is, this is how sick the situation is in our society. But Pope Benedict, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, he had the, had the courage and the brilliance to talk about the root causes in sociological terms. He understood that it was the sexual revolution that drove the problem in the Catholic Church. And for this, he was hammered by people like Lori Goodstein of the New York Times and others. Oh, you're blaming Woodstock? No. Look, as a sociologist, we always look at root causes. In the 1960s, we had the black riots. Everybody should look at the root causes, whether it's racism, discrimination, whatever it is. We're not trying to exonerate anybody. The same is true with the sexual revolution and its effects in this country. Uh, and, 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 of course, with the Catholic Church. And as I've said many times, we're not the Amish. God bless the Amish, but we're not the Amish. The Amish are not affected by the cultural currents of our society. They're outside of it. Catholic Church is very much a part of the established culture. And so what, what the winds of change that take place in our society. Now, I will admit, and I'm sure you agree with me, Father, we should have resisted those changes yes. instead yes. of succumbing to them. That was our problem. But to say that we were unaffected is simply sociologically illiterate, and Benedict should be praised for what he did. I was in seminary, and I was ordained in 76. Before that, I was in seminary. And I can recall those who said it's prophetic to let go of traditional Catholic morality and look into the future. And it wasn't. It was evil. Now, look, we have to take a little break, Bill. We're going to come back in a couple minutes. I want to take a look at a few more of these issues. So please stay with us.
Okay, we are continuing our discussion of a brand new book called The Truth About Clergy Sexual Abuse, Clarifying the Facts and the Causes. It was written by Bill Donahue. It is available at EWTNRC.com, where is item number 4859. It's uh, very, very well done. Uh, Bill, uh, I'd like to ask you another question. Uh, you had said that the great majority of cases of sexual abuse of minors was not pedophilia, but was with adolescent and adolescent males, that this was an issue of homosexual misbehavior and abuse. Um, but does that mean that most homosexuals are child abusers? Is that what you're saying? No, as a matter of fact, I, I say that that is simply wrong. There's no evidence to say that whatsoever. There's also, though, a problem that I have with the John Jay researchers. The John Jay uh, criminal, criminologist who did this study, the two studies on the Catholic Church, I think their methodology was good. I think that they, the, the statistics that they, were, that they garnered uh, were impressive, and I give them high marks for almost everything. The one area of disagreement I have with them, and it's a serious disagreement, is when they say, yes, over 80% of the molesting priests were homosexuals in terms of was, was dealing with post-pubescent adolescent boys, they come to the conclusion that homosexuality had nothing to do with it. Well, no, I'm not saying that being a homosexual this certainly does not cause you to abuse anybody. But on the other hand, if almost all of the cases of abuse were done by homosexual priests and not heterosexual priests, there's got to be something which would explain that phenomenon. And in sociology, we, we look at what's called the intervening variables. You have the independent variable, which is the cause, and then you have the dependent variable, which is the effect. In between, there's something called the, the, the intervening variable. It's, it's a reflection of the independent variable, but it's not exactly totally related to it. So what we have here is this. The only way you can account for the fact that homosexuals are overrepresented is because you'd have to look at the sexual and emotional immaturity, which marks many homosexuals, certainly many more than would be true in the heterosexual community. And I am convinced that Freud and Jung were right about this. And by the way, I look at the statements, the comments made by the molesting priest. They admit that they are immature. They are sexually and emotionally immature. Their psychosocial development, the psychosexual development is stunted. Once they reach the adolescent stage, they kind of plateau out, which would explain why they identify so many of these rather childlike priests will then identify in terms of playing with, in an innocent way, uh, youngsters. But they've never grown into an adult uh, maturation uh, process in terms of their, their emotional and sexual development. That explains it. By the way, there is a higher incidence of child abuse amongst homosexuals in our society. Again, I'm not saying that, that to be a homosexual is, is to be a predator. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. But there is evidence to suggest that the emotional and sexual immaturity, which is characteristic of so many homosexuals, many more than would be true in the heterosexual community, 
is intricately related and explains why they have such a higher incidence of abuse. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that those are important distinctions to make. Um, but the other thing that you bring out uh, very clearly in your book is that, you know, again, uh, Pope uh, Emeritus Benedict had said this as well, that there was a breakdown of Catholic morality, uh, you know, that people, no matter what their uh, uh, sexual orientation might be, in the case of abusing anybody, they are going flat against moral law and moral teaching. And the sexual revolution, as well as the revolution within the Catholic Church on sexual morality, in 68, when the uh, Humanae Vitae came out, I think is very closely allied. The cultural setting of the cultural, the sexual revolution was then augmented by many priests objecting to uh, the uh, Humanae Vitae, which s isolated the procreative element of sex from the pleasure and love aspect. And once they began to put love ahead of procreation, therefore, if you love somebody, any sexual behavior could be morally acceptable. This was something stated by uh, Father Charles Curran on a 2020 segment that in his own descent, he said that, you know, all sorts of sexual behaviors could be uh, morally acceptable, including homosexuality and even adultery, if it was, in, in if it entailed true love. Now, that kind of dissent from Catholic morality, not only on birth control, but on then this division uh, of uh, sexuality from uh, between love and procreation, that had a big impact on the way sexual morality was taught in the seminaries in the 1960s and 70s, especially the 70s. Well, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, the Catholic Church has had a, uh, a, a sexual ethic based on reticence, on the idea that restraint is good. It's not, it's not an evil. We threw that out in our society, and we, we engaged in a more libertine or promiscuous understanding of sexuality, mm -hmm. which wrecked the lives of men and women and children. Now, the disgraceful thing about this is that, yes, you mentioned the seminaries. In the 1970s, the worst of the decades in the history of the Catholic Church in this country, in some of the seminaries, they had a book by Anthony Kosnick, a priest, called Human Sexuality, mm -hmm. which, was, which was commissioned by the Catholic Theological Society of America and given its top prize. It said that there were all kinds of different sexual experiences and that we shouldn't be judgmental in, in a, any kind of a hierarchical fashion in rating them. So, in other words, what, what I'm saying is this. If you are being taught in the seminary that 
homosexuality is just another way of expressing yourself sexually, along with some very, which I'm not going to get into, not to offend, because I don't want to offend the, the viewers, but some really sick practices, some really sick, deviant sex practices. If you're told that it's these things are okay, basically, because you're not going to make any bad judgment against them, if you're a normal man, it's not going to have any effect on you. You're not going to go out and act that way. However, what if you are already troubled? What if you suffer from some kind of a psychological malady, some kind of disorder, and it's now taught to you that expressing yourself with other men and with other other uh, opportunities, uh, that's okay? Well, that, that person is more likely now to act on it. And we've seen this over and over and over again. Uh, there was another book by Crooks and Bauer by the same title called Human Sexuality, that was even more perverse than the book by Kosnick, and it, too, was being taught in some of the seminaries in the 1970s. I remember going on the Phil Donahue show, as I said to Phil, you're not, we're not related biologically or ideologically. Uh, that, that book by Crooks and Bauer was actually taught in some of the seminaries as well, and it, it's some really sick stuff there. So, yeah, the, the, this is what causes a problem dissent from the traditional Catholic moral teachings is what opens the door to disordered men thinking it's okay to act on their impulses. They definitely played a role, and that would certainly include the National Catholic Reporter, uh, which I don't regard as a truly Catholic publication. Indeed, the bishops don't themselves. No, 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 I wouldn't either. Um, but the, the, the other thing, too, is uh, you, you, there's an important role among some of the psychologists of the late 60s and early 70s who saw and, and taught, I was thinking of Wilhelm Reich and some of the other neo-Freudians, who saw that f you know, free sexual expression was the number one sign of mental health. Well, if you start off with that, uh, and, and Reich had his own problems, as it turned Many out. Many of them. Uh, <laughs> and, but this was then, oh, the psychologists say that you got to do this. You put that psychological condoning, various studies like uh, the uh, Alfred Kinsey study, and then moral theology books that taught immorality in the sexual realm, you put all that together, you've got, as they often talk about, a perfect storm. Well, you have people, uh, a lot of these people who were involved in, in, uh, in, in the sex industry, as I like to call it, were themselves perverts, like, like Kinsey and others. Uh, so look, look, look who's giving us the teachings on, on this. And then you had Foucault in, in France. He used, to, he used to brag about raping uh, boys, and he was, he was a towering figure in, in France, and he said, all this nonsense about AIDS, it's just a social construct. It doesn't exist in real life. Well, guess what he died of? A social construct, yeah, a social construct called AIDS, because promiscuity kills spiritually, psychologically, and physically. Right. And it has to be, and unfortunately, people have made a lot, of, a lot of morticians very wealthy because they didn't want to tap the brakes that God gave them. Yep. The more promiscuous a person is, the more likely they are, obviously, to get various diseases and 
uh, and sadly die of them. And one, this just brings out the, that nature is not oriented towards promiscuity. Nature is pointing out to us that the teaching of the church on fidelity of one man with one woman is the way of not only spiritual health, but psychological and physical health and social health. That the, uh, you already mentioned that uh, about the problems in homes where there are unmarried people living together with children is the most dangerous place for single women and for children. That's where abuse takes place. The safest place is a man and a woman married faithfully to each other, raising their children together. That's the safest place and economically most healthy. I I think you make a a salient point there, Father. When you talk about uh, nature, yes, the Catholic Church's teachings on sexuality reflect nature. They understand nature and nature's God. There's no contradiction or opposition there or tension between the two of them. Mm-hmm. There is, however, tension between the sexual ethic of a dominant culture, which is one of libertinism, of a free-for-all, of liberty as license, and, and nature, because that's when you pay the price. As I say, psychologically and, and physically and spiritually, uh, it, can, it can kill you because you're at war with nature and nature's God. And this is what we see in our society today, people denying that a pregnant woman is carrying a baby, people not saying that two men can get married. They can't have a family, naturally. Then, then we have the other insanity of denying nature, saying that a boy could be a girl, a girl could be a boy. No, they cannot. You can't change nature. You're either XX chromosome mm-hmm or XY chromosome. There's no such thing as XYZ chromosome. And yet we live in a country with this madness is actually accepted in the health industry, not just simply by some of the kooks in in, in academia and higher education. Now, the Catholic Church's teachings, they may be rough to follow, but you'd be better off trying to follow those teachings where the bar is set high than by dropping the bar so low and then you wind up in the mess that we are in in our society today. And it's not something that we say applies to the laity alone for them to follow. We priests choose celibacy. We, A, most of us believe that we were called by our Lord to this way of life. And we make a choice after careful deliberation. You're not just ramrodded into taking your vows. You take your vows after a number of years of careful reflection and prayer and clear choice. But when you do make that choice, you have to follow the moral law just as much as lay people who are single have to follow moral law and lay people who are married have to follow moral law. This, no one is exempt from obeying the law of nature and the law of God. 
in terms of sexual morality. And we all have to find ourselves called up by God to be holy in these areas. And unfortunately, I, I like to say the three most dreaded words in the English language today are thou shalt not. No, but they make sense, don't they? The, the, the Ten Commandments makes sense because it talks to what some of our temptations might be, but that we know that we shouldn't do them. But today, oh, it's on judgmentalism. That in itself, ironically, is a judgment, is it not, Father? Yeah. To say that there's no such thing as non-judgment. You, want to make a judgment. Exactly. Well, you just made a judgment when you made that silly comment. Of course, people can make people can become too judgmental. We understand that. That's not the point. The point is that there are behaviors which are in accordance with nature and those behaviors which are not in accordance with nature. And we pay a price if we try to ignore what we are informed and taking our cues from nature and nature's God and the arrogance of the intellectuals though in thinking that we don't need God, that's their sin of pride. They're smarter than God, and we're not going to be told by anybody what we can do. Uh, so they always make exceptions, of course, for masks and things like that. They like mask mandates. They can, that, that, that bodily autonomy doesn't seem to count on that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, people keep saying, well, you know, the Catholic Church has is, is, is had some uh, uh, very uh, high-bar type of uh, teachings. That's true. And let's keep it in mind, people. Every single priest who ever molested, there were very few of them overall. As I said, 149 responsible for 26% of all the cases, and less than 4% involved in any kind of inappropriate behavior. Every one of those priests did so by rejecting Catholic teaching. Mm -hmm. he, didn't, he didn't practice Catholic teaching. He abandoned Catholic teaching. There's nothing wrong with the teachings. The problem is with some of the teachers, namely that minority, that small minority of priests, the teachers who follow their id or their, or their, their sexual uh, impulse and not their vow of chastity. So the church has the answer. It's just that enough, more people have to follow the, 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 and practice what the church teaches. This is, and the, the other thing with that is we priests have to teach what the church teaches, that this applies to the seminary faculty in moral theology, and it applies to the priests in the pulpit. One of the issues, I think, in our teaching of the right to life for the unborn, a consequence of that teaching is that there is an inherent dignity in the child from the moment of conception forward. And that dignity is something you protect after they're born. That's why they can, cannot be objects of sexual abuse. That you start that respect at conception all the way until natural death. And then you have a whole different basis for morality regarding uh, young people. And I would add to that, that, you know, the Catholic Church's teachings on sexuality and, and on the beginning of life, that is science. Yep. Science tells us that Absolutely. the DNA, which makes all of us special, there's no such thing as a clone in that sense. We're all special individuals. Our DNA that makes us special 
was there at fertilization. Not a week later, not a month later, not 10 months later, not when the child is three. Everybody knows that the beginning of life is at fertilization, at conception. They don't want to believe in it, but you know, it's amazing all the, 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 the torturous language that they have to use, a woman's right to choose. What is she choosing? What's, what's, what? To kill a, a unique child. Voice. What is she choosing to do? Yeah. Right. They don't want to talk about it. Right. Do you now, remember Bill, back in the. Bill, yeah. I'm afraid that we're flat out of time. Unfortunately, I just want to, we can go on. But I want to encourage people to get your book, uh, The Truth About Clergy Sexual Abuse, at EWTNRC.com, uh, item 4859. And I want to thank you for writing it and for being with us. God bless you, and may the Lord bless all of our viewers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you, and thank, you. thank all of our viewers for making this possible. Without your support, we couldn't have the show. So keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill, and we'll pay our bills too. Thank you.